to the soundtrack of Space and the Curious Case of Dimming Stars. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. The soundtrack of Space. From Gustav Holtz's suite The Planets to Kubrick's choice of Blue Danube in 2001 A Space Odyssey, certain pieces of music are just cosmic. Now, a new project by a space entrepreneur and a musician is building upon the soundtrack of space by beaming songs into the cosmos, starting from the International Space Station. We'll speak with Bob Richards and Christopher Houck about the aim of their Artemis Music program and how to listen to the sounds of the universe. Then, last year, we talked about the dimming of the star Betelgeuse. Well, since then, another has curiously dimmed. What gives? We'll speak with our panel of expert scientists from the University of Central Florida about the strange cases of dimming stars. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Last week, Bob Richards and Christopher Houck beamed a recording of Claire de Lune into space, utilizing a commercial platform on the International Space Station. It was then beamed back down to Earth and identified as a song that played in space using NFT and blockchain technology. The plan is to create a network for musicians to send their work to space and certify it as genuine using NFT technology, but for both Bob Richards and Christopher Houck, the platform is more than just that. It's demonstrating the relationship between science and music. Bob, Christopher, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Brendan. Thank you for having us. So, Bob, the last time we had you on the show, we were talking about how you were building a lunar spacecraft, um, and now you're here to talk about music. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about how that pivot happened. Uh, where, where's, where, where's your, where'd the inspiration for you, for you to focus on music come from? Well, it's actually, uh, it's actually not a pivot. It's actually me rediscovering, and thanks to, to Christopher, who's on, on with us here, uh, the other half of my DNA that I'd left behind when I ventured into the space industry, which is music. So it's, it's more of me reforming myself as a whole. Uh, I was born to two professional musicians, uh, grew up in and around music and theater, and put myself through university playing trumpet in rock bands and cover bands. And I kind of lost that side of me when I went into space and rediscovered it uh, when we formed Artemis Music a few years ago. Christopher, you are a musician. Did you find space first, or did you uh, find your way to space through music? Um, I definitely found music first. My parents got me into music from a very young age, um, but ever since I was a kid, I've always loved learning about a lot of a lot of different things. And one thing that really captured my attention was space and astronomy. And so I just kind of fell in love with both of them through my childhood. Mm-hmm. They're both, they're kind of interconnected, right? I mean, when, when you think about classical pieces that, at least for me, are permanently connected to space, there, there's the, you know, the Blue Danube from, from 2001, Space Odyssey, there's Claire de Lune, there's pretty much anything by Hans Zimmer has, you know, that space feel to it. Um, Christopher, I want to start with you. What, what makes music so cosmic? Where does that inspiration come from? Yeah, no, I, I would... Totally agree with that statement. I think because music is probably one of the most powerful things we have on this planet, it's one of the things that lets us look beyond ourselves. And I'm not just talking personally. I'm talking looking beyond ourselves as as humanity or as a planet. Um, it might be cliche to say, but I think that music has the potential to be otherworldly at times, especially like Hans Zimmer music, for example. 
um, which is why he creates such incredible soundtracks. And the entirety, like the entire idea of space, is is all about the unknown and the wonder, and the literal otherworldliness of it. So I think that's where the connection might be. Uh, absolutely, and and there, there's the inspirational, aspirational nature that Christopher is referencing, and and that leads to some of the greatest works that we have that really help define us as humanity. But there's also another connection, Brendan, that's a, a, a little bit more mathematical and scientific, which was one of the things that was a, a revelation to me. I'd, I'd grown up uh, immersed in music for the first part of my life and then immersed in space for kind of the second part of my life. And I didn't realize how much they were basically one of the same or at least covariant and, and interconnected. Uh, when the early astronomers were trying to figure out the motions of the planets and the stars and just trying to figure it all out, uh, uh, Kepler's laws of planetary motion. If you look back to his earliest writings, he uses music to actually figure out the motions of the planets. And when you think about it, that's, that, that's not really much of a surprise because the planets and the moons and the stars, they all have resonances. Uh, uh, moons, uh, for instance, orbit around planets, planets orbit around stars, stars orbit around galaxies. There's a lot of resonances in the heavens, so there's a natural amount of music going on in the heavens. And, and this was a revelation to me when Christopher and I were working in the earliest days of Artemis music on data sonification of stars and planets working with NASA. And uh, there's some beautiful music that actually comes from space if we listen correctly. Tell, tell me about that sounds... Fascinating. Data sonification? What is that? It's it's a lot simpler than it sounds. It's essentially taking any information and turning it into sound. Um, so what we were working with was this project called Concordia that was trying to take the, as Bob said, the resonances that um, planets and stars were giving off um, in th- through space and ter- turning it into music, trying to essentially create an instrument that would allow us to overlay uh, some type of filter whether that be a key or um some type some other type of um musical annotation and and turn it into music and literally hear the star singing one of the brendan that's exactly right and and if you look up at the night sky you know the stars uh have colors which means frequency which means spectrum which means tone uh the car the stars have different levels of brightness or magnitude, as they say in astronomy, but it's basically brightness, and brightness can be considered volume. And then they also have placement, so they have structures, just like you would have notes on a scale or chords. And if you were listening to an orchestra filled with virtuosos warming up before a performance, it just sounds like a cacophony of sound because they're just all playing anything. If you listen to the cosmos in the same way, without any sort of order, you'll just hear a cacophony of sound. But if you apply, like Christopher was saying, a key signature, and you apply a metric of the way that the music is played in time, a time signature, then guess what comes out? Music. So the, 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 the astronomical universe can actually generate music if we listen with the right filters. Now, along with listening to the cosmos. You're also sending music into the cosmos with the Artemis Network. Um, Christopher, maybe you can tell me a little bit about uh, the Artemis Network as a platform um, and and what you're hoping to accomplish with it. So um, the Artemis Network is really, <laughs> in its inception, It's it's we kind of just started it. 
Um, but some of the things that we plan on doing, especially with regard to the International Space Station, um, is kind of pr- providing a, a moment for whatever we send, mostly music, to be above it all. In the same way that uh, Brendan, the the uh, the few people who have experienced being above the planet, above it all, as Christopher said, uh, get that that cognitive shift in perspective. They have this sense of unity. They have this sense of connection to the universe that you just don't get from down here on Earth. Uh, we want to put music and and uh, above it all, and uh, uh, and and anything that's important in the art in the art world, from music to to artwork, above it all, and and the Artemis uh, uh, Space Network. Starting with the International Space Station, with our the test that we did just last week, uh, with uh, both an audio file, the very first music, and an artwork, the very first art, to be flown with that purpose uh, into space and to orbit the Earth. Uh, it provides a way for artists and musicians and creators to connect with space, not just from an inspirational point looking up or being passive or being disconnected, but being connected with it. Your, your, your creative work is in space, and we think that makes it very special. Bob, tell me a little bit about the, the piece that you decided to send up for, uh, for this test that happened last week. Um, what, what, what song did you choose, and, and how did you choose the performer um, that was going to record it? Well, when we, when we realized we're going, this test was going to take place with, uh, to prove out our technical uh, conduits to the space station and the process of doing it, and we realized that it shouldn't just be any old song. It shouldn't just be any old file. It should be something special. It's it's historic. So we wanted to select a piece that's both timeless and meaningful, beautiful, representative of humanity, and uh, representative of the unification that we all want music uh, to be. Uh, and it, it, the selection of the of the of the um, of the piece goes back to a meeting that Christopher and I had uh, at the Kennedy Space Center. And it was actually back to your conversation, Christopher, that started this all. So I'm going to pass it back to you to announce what that piece was. Yeah, so um, it was just kind of um, an off-the-cuff moment of inspiration. I just thought, I had an idea that it should be Claire de Lune. Um, It's probably one of the most influential Impressionist pieces ever written. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. It's familiar. So many people know it. Um, and, you know, it's called Claire de Lune. It's literally moonlight. So um, it has a connection with space already because when it was written and just listening to it, you're able to kind of hear the connection that it has. Like, like as we were talking about earlier, the otherworldly sounds full of wonder. And so I just, you know, felt that that would be an extremely appropriate piece to to send up. And everybody that we tested that idea on just loved it. They're just, just like you, Brendan, it's like, oh, well, of course, you know, there are only a few pieces you might consider that would be at the same level of Claire de Lune. But one of the, one of the qualifications we had uh, decided on for the piece that we would select is we wanted it to be also public domain. We didn't want the complications of commercialization and intellectual property and as you know, the, the, the music industry is really complex when it comes to, to copyright. So we wanted to simplify it as much as possible. Claire de Lune is in the public domain. And that led to, well, uh, but, but the recordings aren't, right, even though the composition is. So we wanted to have 
a specially performed piece that would be the one that would go to space. So we commissioned the performance of the piece uh, with a renowned international pianist, Wing Chong Kam, uh, who uh, uh, has, the, 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 has the talent, we believed, and, and the kind of the understanding of what we were trying to accomplish. And we, we, we're really happy that we chose Wing Chong. So his interpretation is absolutely incredible. Um, it was, I believe when he sent it to us, it was kind of intended as like a, like a kind of scratch track. It wasn't meant to be final, but we loved it so much because of the little, and to be fair, there were not many at all. (laughs) There were not many imperfections, but there were a couple. And we loved that so much because humanity isn't perfect. And we felt that that would be the perfect representation to send up. Like personally, when I listen to music, um, classical music, especially sometimes I like listening to those little imperfections, like the creak of a chair or um, a little reverb from a room where the acoustics aren't necessarily the best because it sounds like they're playing right to me and it just feels so much more personal. And that's what we wanted. We wanted it to be familiar, sorry, excuse me, familiar and personal to everyone who listened to it. So, Mm -hmm. And and Bob, finally, what's ahead for for this program? Um, This was a test uh, last week. What's ahead? This was a test and this was a successful test. We successfully beamed um, uh, Claire de Lune to the International Space Station where they orbited the Earth for a full orbit and passed over many countries and much of the population. Uh, any proceeds that come from the sale of Claire de Lune on auction will go t- uh, uh, to the Artemis Music Foundation, which has a purpose of empowering young musicians, artists, and creators. And But in the future, this is a business, and uh, we do see that we will, we hope to expand the Artemis Space Network uh, to other nodes in space and provide accessibility and a de- democratization of access of artists, whether you're established or just emerging, to not just connect with space inspirationally, inspirationally but to send your work to space and have that extra you know, veneer on it that has actually been in space. And then with, with NFT technology and blockchain technology, we can make those works that went to space one of ones collectibles and hopefully that's going to help increase the ways that young musicians can find compensation for the work that they do fascinating stuff uh christopher and bob thank you so much for joining us thank you so much brenda for having thank us you. still to come sometimes stars don't shine as bright and we don't know why the case of the dimming stars that's ahead on are we there yet here on wmfe america's space station You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Last year on the show, we talked about the dimming of the star Betelgeuse. Well, since then, another star has curiously dimmed. So what gives? 
To help answer that question and find out if it could in fact be aliens, I called our panel of expert UCF physicists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney. Thank you all for coming back. Thanks for having us. So last year we talked about a curious observation of Betelgeuse. Um, Take us back. What did astronomers observe about this star? Well, Betelgeuse is a large star. It's a very bright star visible to the naked eye in the constellation Orion. Uh, It's one of the brightest stars in the sky, and it noticeably dimmed. Now, variability in the brightness of Betelgeuse is not uncommon. It's a, a variable star, but this is a pretty significant dimming, in fact, noticeable to the naked eye. And since it's a large star, we know that sometime in the next, what do we say, million years or so, it's likely to blow up. Okay. Million plus or minus a million. So, right, yeah, right, something <laughs> along those lines. And so uh, there was a lot of speculation, uh, excitement about, is this the sort of pre-show mm-hmm. uh, of the impending supernova explosion of Betelgeuse, which turned out not to be. But it wasn't. Sadly. What did it turn out to be? Do we know? Well, I think we have a few reasonable guesses now, right? So so if a star dims, there's really only a couple of reasons why it can dim, right? One, one reason would be the star itself is getting dimmer somehow, so it's getting cooler or something like that, or there's something that gets in the way. Mm-hmm. Turns out in this case, it was a, some combination of both. So Betelgeuse, like I said, is a very interesting active star. It's got lots of like warm stuff rising and cool stuff falling. So anyway, there was a kind of a cool splotch on the surface of the star, uh, that caused a release of a bunch of stuff, and that stuff condensed into dust. And that dust gets in the way of the light from the star. So it was kind of a combo of the star itself, or the side of the star we were seeing, mm-hmm. cooling off, and a bunch of dust condensing and getting in the way, blocking the light from the star. And those two things together made the star look a lot dimmer. So I mean, it wasn't like something from outside the star got in front an, of it. It was its own... Entirely intrinsic, yeah. Right. And I th- you know what, what Jim mentioned about the splotch on the star, one of the fascinating things about this star is it's big enough and close enough that you we can actually see it. Yeah. We can actually yeah. resolve what the disk of the star looks like so we could really see, oh, part of the star is darker than the other parts. We could visually see that splotch, which is one of the observations that helped come up with this model for mm-hmm. to explain the dimming. And you could see it with the naked eye, too. I remember looking at it in, in the night sky last year. You could year, see right? the star with the naked you eye. Could, you can't yeah. see the splotch. Enhanced eyes. Yeah. Now, now, this isn't the only kind of star that, that does something like this, right? There have been some observations of other variable stars. Tell, tell us a little bit about other stars that, that kind of exhibit the same behavior. So, yeah, so there's a large range of variable stars um, that we observe, and some of them have really periodic uh they're they're variable in really periodic ways, so you know ex- sort of exactly what its phase is going to be. Um, but then there are some that, like Betelgeuse and some some other stars, um, that seem to have some weird dimming events, um, but that are probably tied to other things like what we think Betelgeuse would cause Betelgeuse. So changes in temperature and structure that we're seeing on the surface of those stars. Even the, you know, you can think of this splotch on Betelgeuse as sort of like a ginormous sunspot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the sun has spots, but they're relatively small and few and far between. And so they don't make a gigantic input or change in the brightness of the sun. But if you scale that up, so different stars have their own sort of internal life of the star. Um, But then there are instances of stars that exhibit some dimming due to something outside the star going on. And this has been used to great success to detect planets Mm -hmm. orbiting stars. So 
the Kepler telescope and now the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, have been monitoring lots and lots of stars in the sky to look for these little periodic dimmings. Mm -hmm. And it could be things like sunspots or something periodic like what Addy was referring to, or it could be something periodic orbiting the stars, such as a planet. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of these other um, observations now that are from survey telescopes. So it's um, that are ground-based telescopes a lot of times that are just looking at other parts of the sky at other times too. So not just tests, other ground-based telescopes. And they can look in different wavelengths or in the visible wavelengths. And they just stare at patches of sky for a long time and look for lots of different stars and look for patterns in lots of different stars. Yeah, it's cool these days. You don't, you don't have to look at one star at a time. You can look at hundreds of thousands of That's stars amazing. all at the same time and wait for one of them to dim. So it's now great when have... you have trouble focusing on one thing. So many stars. <laughs> uh, one of these variable stars that kind of made it into the mainstream media, there was a piece in National Geographic about uh, VVV WIT08, which I, I love that the WIT name. stands for. What is, is this? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a bit about that variable star. Variable star is maybe not the right word for it. Okay. So it definitely dimmed, and it dimmed dramatically. So it, it uh, this would... The, this dimming event occurred in 2012 and lasted at least 170 days. They don't have observations spanning the entire dimming event. Uh, but it got down to 97% of the light blocked. Okay. Is that significant? That's huge. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, a, that, like almost the whole star is just gone. What, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, yeah. that's not a kind of thing that you would have if it was like a just getting a little cooler or something like that. That's not well, the kind of yeah. dimming event like we saw with Orion. So 97% of the star's just... light was blocked. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So not down to 97%. Nope. No, 97% okay. yeah, was blocked. Right? Because usually when we think about like transit events and dimming events, you think about like planets going in front of a star mm -hmm. and you see those light dips, but that's like 0.00002%. Of yeah, the light. This okay. is ninety-seven percent of the light. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I take yeah. back my stupid question. Whether this is significant or not. Yeah. No, it's it's so unexpected, right? Yeah. Because it's like okay, so it's ninety-seven percent of the brightness. Maybe it's been dimmed, and that would still be a lot, right? Mm -hmm. That yeah. a three percent dimming 3 would still dip be a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ninety-seven percent dip is that's, that's the kind where you say, "What is that?" Okay. So that yeah. that's why yeah. it gets the moniker. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Yeah. And so they explored a lot of different possible estimations for it. So it could. Could it be something intrinsic to the star, like we were describing for Betelgeuse? You know, could the star have, you know, belched a bunch of dust out it's in front of, of itself or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Um, could it be a binary companion? A lot of stars are have binary companion stars, so other stars that are orbiting each other, and sometimes that star might be big but sort of dimmer, and you wouldn't we would, maybe wouldn't have seen it or something like that, and so that could block the light of the star. Could it be alien? <laughs> <laughs> Or is it a big Dyson sphere? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, that would be exciting. So they were able to to pretty convincingly rule out it being something intrinsic to the star itself. They have a lot of observations of this star. And one of the telltale facts about the observation is that the dimming occurred the same at all wavelengths. Mm -hmm. And uh, that throws out a whole bunch of models and theories that are related to something going on inside the star itself, like a temperature change in the star is going to preferentially dim some wavelengths compared to other wavelengths. And even if it's like a big dust cloud in the way, that would also sort of right. preferentially dim some wavelengths, but you'd see more emitted at other wavelengths as mm -hmm. that right. dust right. from that dust. So that tends to suggest, and also the shape of the light curve and how it was uh, blocked, how that light was blocked over time, looks very much like some big thing mm -hmm. 
moved in front of that star. And uh, that sounds ominous, right? It does. <laughs> Big giant eclipse. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, so the star itself is a giant star, but it's not a very massive star. It's about the same mass as the sun, but it's about the size of the orbit of Mercury. Okay. So that means that if you're blocking 97 percent of that. You've got uh, something pretty big, mm-hmm. right, that's blocking it, unless it's very close to us. So I could block it out with my thumb, right, which right. isn't very big. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, so that was another thing I looked at. It's like, could this be something in between us and the star? Which would which be is, crazy, but would, cool. Would, right. So then you get into this whole question mm-hmm. statistics, like what are the chances that something moved in? They were able to pretty much rule that out as well. It wasn't a smudge on the telescope or anything. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, yeah. right, yeah. A bug flew in the yeah. front. Yeah. And we've seen a number of these objects now. So this was like the, the one that made the headlines was like number eight or something like mm-hmm. that. There's obviously, that means there was seven-ish before that. And there's mm-hmm. been a couple since yeah. then that they've been finding. Yeah, up to at least 11. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's there's W-I-T's. a number of these objects. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we talk about what it's not. I mean, what could it be? Well... Aliens, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Is it a massive Could spaceship? I guarantee you there's people out there that are uh, thinking about that. Uh, yeah. It's possible, but of course it's very unlikely. The most likely scenario, I guess, is that uh, there is another star in the system, but it's not just the star that's blocking the light. It's this star must have a big disk of dust around it, right? So, And big dust. Big dust, right. So yeah. it can't be, you know, the, the so, so this is a big, like a big giant rubble pile, like, Akin to our asteroid belt or something like but that, much but, denser. but much denser. Yeah. Right? So our, our asteroid sort of like belt a Star Wars version of the asteroid belt. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Think Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Right. And that's not you know that's not a thing that is unreasonable. That's that's a thing that we would expect around stars, but uh, it's certainly not something we've seen a lot. So yeah, typically the early stage of a, of a solar system forming or in the early days of a star forming, you get a big cloud of gas and dust and those small particles and as soon as they start accreting and making big stuff you end up with lots of gaps mm-hmm. and openings you start making planets so you can sort of imagine a transition from a lot of dust which would not give the color signature that we see for this dimming event to sort of rings of mm-hmm. bigger stuff with planets and gaps and things like that so this is somewhere intermediate yeah. in there where the particles are big enough that they block all different colors of light the same way. Mm-hmm. So that's not, not they don't need to be asteroid big, but they have to be at least marble big mm-hmm. right. sort of size. Yeah. Well, I'm rooting for giant dust cloud as opposed to a giant planet-killing yes. spaceship that okay. is... Uh, Great. Sounds good. Yes. <laughs> speaking with Jim Cooney, Josh Caldwell, and Addie Dove. They are physicists at the University of Central Florida and host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Thank you all for coming in. Great to be here. You can get that podcast wherever you get your podcast, or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And just to mention, UCF is a financial sponsor of this podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more space news, be sure to visit our website, wmfe.org slash space. Follow us on Twitter at awtyspace or give me a follow. I'm at spacebrendan. Are We There Yet's a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Randy Vuxta. This is his last week with us. Thanks for all your hard work, Randy. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>